This is state terrorism. We are law-abiding people. We're not lawless like President Trump. Well done, Mr. President. You've got Iran calling you a terrorist. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as the world remained on edge on Tuesday in the wake of Donald Trump's targeted assassination of Iran's top military general late last week, with the administration attempting to justify their actions as lawful, and Iran vowing revenge for the death of one of its most revered leaders. A deadly stampede killed at least 56 mourners during funeral processions for the slain Iranian general on Tuesday, as millions took to the streets in several Iranian cities to show their respects for Soleimani, the second most powerful figure in the country, and to call for retaliation against the U.S. for his murder. Reactions in this country by executive branch officials have been disturbing, with reports of Iranian-American citizens being questioned and detained for hours at ports of entry to the country by customs and border officials. And while Trump Defense Secretary Mark Esper has countered President Trump's promise to carry out war crimes against Iran, Should they have the temerity to respond to his targeted assassination, Trump has continued to stand by his threat of attacking Iran, uh, Iran's cultural and heritage sites in response, which would be a war crime, according to the Geneva Convention, as we discussed a bit on yesterday's broadcast in which I cited some of the responsibility that Democrats must take in uh, helping us to have even reached this point in the first place by refusing to hold previous presidents accountable, including George W. Bush and, yes, Barack Obama, for similar, if not nearly extreme, as extreme and, and consequential actions as the one carried out on Friday by Donald Trump. Listener Vinny 
wrote into bradcast at bradblog.com in response to yesterday's program to say, Hi, Brad. Good show tonight. Well, thank you, Vinny. You hit the nail right on the head about a thought I had all day today. This was the sum of all my fears, he writes. Both Democrats and Republicans are both responsible, as far as I'm concerned, regarding the crisis we are in right now. The collective vilification of Iran ever since 1979 has been a vicious cycle. Additionally, after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there was the looting of the artifactual and cultural effects in Iraq. So where was the outrage then, asks Vinny. If we truly don't impeach this president, we will continue to more horror. We need more channels of diplomacy, he writes, not dysfunctional hatred. Well, uh, thanks, Vinny. Of course, I couldn't agree more, though I will note that the looting of the cultural artifacts during the 2003 war on Iraq was not actually done by Americans, but by others in that country. We did not, however, have a plan in place to protect those artifacts after our invasion. I don't know if that qualifies in and of itself as a war crime or not. Uh, there were certainly many other things that George W. Bush did, which were certainly war crimes, but for which he was never held responsible. Not by world legal organizations or even by Democrats here at home, incredibly enough. Uh, as to impeachment, uh, let me note real quickly here that the Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has announced on uh, Tuesday that he has he now has enough votes in the U.S. Senate to proceed to a trial, to a fixed trial, I should add, without hearing from witnesses or obtaining documents from the White House, which, of course, you know, is what you always want to do in any trial, Desi Doyen, is not hear from the actual eyewitnesses to the crime. Well, when you're a Republican and you don't want to know the answer, that is exactly what you do. Correct. Uh, they do not apparently want to hear from former National Security Advisor John Bolton, uh, who said on Monday he would be willing to testify in the trial if he was subpoenaed. I should also note that John Bolton could voluntarily testify. John Bolton could just start talking if he really wanted to uh, bring some sort of accountability here, he's not doing that so far. Nonetheless, uh, a rigged trial against the impeached Donald Trump at this point could now begin any day if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sends over the uh, two articles of impeachment that were passed before the end of the year to the Senate. Uh, or with a vote of 51 senators, it could begin even without those articles being officially transmitted. But for the moment, Trump's assassination of uh, an Iranian general has succeeded in taking the spotlight off of his impeachment, as designed, I believe, and as the media and the world focus on what may happen next from Iran in their promised retaliation. In a, a uh, pre-taped CNN interview that aired on Tuesday, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif described President Donald Trump's drone strike on high-ranking military leader Qasem Soleimani to be an act of state terrorism. Your government and your leadership and the military here has vowed to take action against the United States. Well, the United what kind of retaliation States, is that The United States violated three principles, Iraqi sovereignty and the agreement that they had with Iraq. They got a response from the Iraqi parliament. They violated the emotions of the people. They will get a response from the people. They killed one of our 
most revered commanders and most senior commanders, and they took responsibility for it. This is state terrorism, this is an act of aggression against Iran, and it amounts to an armed attack against Iran, and we will respond. But we will respond proportionately, not disproportionately, because we are committed to law. We are law-abiding people. We're not lawless like President Trump. So you think that you can strike at any point? Well, we think, Because you obviously, you, we think it's no secret we, that you control militias in this region, that you have forces that are on your side in this region, in many countries. No, we have people on our side in this region. That's much more important. The United States believes that this beautiful military equipment, according to President Trump, that you spend two trillion dollars on these beautiful military equipment. Beautiful military equipment don't rule the world. People rule the world. People. The United States has to wake up to the reality that the people of this region are enraged, that the people of this region want the United States out, and the United States cannot stay in this region with the people of the region not wanting it anymore. That was Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif speaking to uh, CNN today, calling the U.S. Um, and its assassination of their general an act of state terrorism. For its part, on Tuesday, the White House continued to argue that its action to take out Iran's top military commander was not lawless, but was legal and perfectly justifiable, as it was spurred on by an imminent threat, they claim, to American lives, even as they continued ducking questions as to what the imminent threat might have actually been much less offer any public evidence to back up their claim. During an interview uh, on Tuesday on Fox News, naturally, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said that members of Congress would be briefed on the intelligence on Wednesday that led to the assassination of Iranian military uh, official Soleimani in Baghdad. She uh, argued that it was, quote, unfortunate that people were questioning what she called an intelligence-based decision. When Fox News's Bill Hemmer asked Grisham to specify what threats Soleimani posed to American forces in Iraq, however, Grisham dodged, calling it an intel-based decision that saved American lives. I know a lot of people are now questioning the intel. That's really unfortunate. A lot of people are saying, to what benefit? And I will answer that question. The benefit was we saved American lives. We saved members of the military. We saved diplomats. And we saved a lot of families from having to uh, you know, welcome their, their loved ones home in uh, coffins. How long will you keep it private? That is not up to me. Uh, the members of Congress are being briefed tomorrow, so you know they'll they'll get to see that. I imagine some of those details will leak. But again, there's intel that just can't be made public because it's as safety for national security. Many Republicans, I would say, have supported the move, with one exception. That's Rand Paul. Mm -hmm. Last hour, he told us diplomacy, the possibility of it, is now dead. To him, you say what? I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, the president has said that Iran, if he's welcome to talking to them with no preconditions. Um, and, and I did see him speak. And, and I would say that, again, we saved American lives. There, there is nothing that we could have done. The alternative was to, what, not save these people? And then what would people be saying to us? What would Congress be saying? What would Nancy Pelosi be saying? We, that we sat by and let something happen to our American troops or our American diplomats. Again, we saved lives here, and that was the number one most important thing to this president that we let something happen to american troops what is that something <laughs> well and of course everybody knows that killing the top leader of your opponent is the best way to start negotiations uh, well, yeah that that too 
but it is a lot of reliance on uh, simply trusting secret evidence from our intelligence community, from an administration uh, which has spent three years dismissing that same intelligence community, dismissing them and their findings as nothing more than uh, the rigged conclusions of a deep state out to get Donald Trump. But now... Now they, well, we'll just trust the intelligence community, I guess. As to having saved American lives and, and uh, the comments from Republican uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, one of the things that he told reporters last night was, quote, if you ask the question now, is it more or less likely that there will be attacks on Americans? I think it's much more likely. He said, while Soleimani may have been plotting attacks, it's now a certainty that there will be attacks in revenge for his killing. That coming from um, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who is very, very close to the president, backs him up on just about every damn thing, um, has been virtually a constant supporter of him. So uh, it does make it a bit more difficult uh, to claim that this was done to save American lives. But during a press conference following Grisham's interview on Fox, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made similar remarks, declining to share any actual details of what he characterized as an imminent attack on Americans. The move was a slight shift from Pompeo's previous defense over the weekend that it was the Obama administration's policies in the region that had appeased Iran, as he described it, and led to Soleimani's increased influence in Iran and Iraq. When pressed about the intelligence about an imminent threat to Americans, Pompeo was uh, gave a very vague response. He said, we evaluated the relevant risks and the opportunity that we thought might present itself at some point at some point. Uh, he named the massacre in uh, Syria and violence in Lebanon and Iraq as Soleimani's handiwork. He said, we know what happened at the end of of last year in December, ultimately, ultimately leading to the death of an American. He was talking about that American contractor that was killed in a rocket attack. He said, so if you're looking for imminence, you need look no further than the days that led up to the strike that was taken against Soleimani. Now, for the record, uh, imminence is something that is about to happen, not something that has already happened. If Soleimani was in some way responsible for the deaths uh, for the death of that American contractor that Pompeo cites, uh, well, they knew where he was going to be last Friday and they could have arrested him and, and tried him on the evidence that they claim that they have that show that he was responsible for it. Instead, they assassinated him and claimed that something else was about to happen, which they have at least so far yet to tell anybody about. Pompeo's explanation will likely fall short of demands made largely by Democratic lawmakers for specific proof that a serious, imminent threat against American life justified the explosive strike against Soleimani that has stoked anti-American sentiment in an already volatile region, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced on Sunday that she will hold a vote, at least in the House, on a war powers resolution to curtail President Donald Trump's ag aggression against Iran. Uh, that measure would prevent him from taking any more actions against Ar Iran without approval of Congress after 30 days. So that would give Donald Trump a very nice window, at least, of 30 days to do even more damage, I guess, if he likes. 
But, of course, that presumes that the uh, GOP-controlled Senate would even pass matching legislation to go with it. So I see no evidence that that's going to happen. Many of our European allies have expressed apprehension and have urged caution in the wake of Friday's attack as Iran now vows revenge and claims Soleimani to be a martyr. Iraq's parliament over the weekend uh, voted to expel American troops from the region. Uh, in an apparent attempt to keep their country from becoming a battleground in this mess. And Trump has threatened to attack Iran's cultural sites if the conflict continues to escalate, which would, yes, be a war crimes violation of the Geneva Convention. Uh, That was, by the way, rebutted on Monday by Trump's own defense secretary, Mark Esper, who assured reporters that, quote, we will follow the laws of armed conflict. But is any of this even legal at all under U.S. or international law, beginning with the assassination of Soleimani itself, actually beginning long before the targeted killing of Soleimani? And if it's not legal, who is there to do anything about any of it? Congress? The United Nations? Are either of them actually able or willing to stop a lawless U.S. president, even if they wanted to? National security legal expert Karen J. Greenberg of Fordham University School of Law joins us next on the broadcast to try and make sense of just some of this madness for which uh, I feel there is a lot of blood on a lot of hands that brought us to this perilous moment in U.S. and, yes, world history. We'll talk to her next. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. In late December of 1974, just months after the impeachment inquiry and eventual resignation of President Richard Nixon, the New York Times published a lengthy investigative article by Seymour Hersh detailing covert operations by the CIA over the years that involved U.S. assassination attempts on foreign leaders and covert attempts to subvert foreign governments. In addition, the explosive article also discussed efforts by the executive branch intelligence agencies to collect information on the political activities of U.S. citizens. In response, the United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities was formed in 1975 to investigate abuses by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, and the IRS. Chaired by Idaho Democratic Senator Frank Church, it became better known as the Church Committee. I don't understand why that really long name didn't hold up, but oh well. The uh, Church Committee was just one uh, one of a series of post-Watergate investigations into intelligence abuses by the U.S. government. 
The committee's efforts and ultimate calls for reform led to the establishment of the permanent U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which you also may have heard of. The Church Committee, at a time when the U.S. government still seemed to work as designed, at least in part, in dealing with the fallout following the scandalous and unprecedented resignations of both a U.S. vice president and a president of the United States in the two years prior, and several covert assassination attempts on foreign foreign leaders, that committee would eventually find, according to Fordham University national security expert Karen Greenberg in her op-ed at The New York Times today, that assassination was, quote, incompatible with American principle, international order and morality. The committee's final report, she explains, recommended a ban on assassination in the absence of war and except in cases of imminent danger. Though no such law was passed by Congress, President Gerald Ford issued an executive order in 1976 banning political assassination. That executive order, at least in theory, is still in effect today, though, as Greenberg notes, since it was issued, some presidents have claimed the authority to circumvent the ban when they deemed it necessary, including Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and yes, now including Donald J. Trump. Greenberg writes that Ronald Reagan reportedly claiming to act, quote, in good faith and within the context of, quote, approved operation, launched a failed attack on a Lebanese cleric. The Clinton administration, in considering plans for targeting Osama bin Laden, determined it would be an act of self-defense and therefore not an assassination. After the attacks of September 11, quote, targeted killings became the new rubric employed to bypass the ban on assassinations, a term which had conveniently escaped definition either by the church committee or subsequent presidential authorizations. Under President George W. Bush and Barack Obama, executive authority to carry out these targeted killings expanded, writes Greenberg. Bush authorized some 50 strikes, but the policy came into its own under President Obama. His administration's lawyers reasoned that despite the ban on assassinations, targeted killings against non-state actors outside the zone of active hostilities and in cases of imminent threat were, in fact, lawful as acts of self-defense in the context of the war on terror, thus authorizing a program that resulted in hundreds of strikes, causing the deaths of thousands of suspected terrorists and an untold number of civilians. One of those suspected terrorists, uh, by the way, that were successfully targeted by an Obama drone strike was Anwar al-Awlaki, a U.S. citizen who became a top al-Qaeda cleric. He was targeted and killed under orders from Obama without direct authorization from Congress. But now, and particularly in light of the U.S. killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, the program of targeted killings ordered by the president of the United States appears to have broken new ground with the assassination of a top state official as opposed to the non-state actors that had been targeted by previous presidents. Following the targeted drone strike last week near the Baghdad airport, which killed Soleimani and a number of Iraqi officials as well, 
There has been a debate as to whether the strike was an assassination barred by Gerald Ford's presidential executive order of 1976 or a so-called targeted killing to prevent an imminent threat, as the Trump administration claims to have been necessary in order to save hundreds of American lives, even as they have failed so far to present any public evidence of the deadly attack they claimed to be imminent in the killing of Soleimani. So was what appears to have been a political assassination of Iran's second most powerful public figure a lawful killing under U.S. law or even under international law? And if it wasn't, as they say, who and what army is going to do anything about it to bring the criminals responsible to justice? Joining us now for some answers to those questions and just a few more that I have is Professor Karen J. Greenberg, an expert on national security, terrorism and civil liberties and the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University. She's also the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, which was named one of the best books of 2009 by The Washington and Post, and her newest book is Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, which explores the U.S. war on terror's impact on justice and law in America. Professor Greenberg, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, allow me to start with how previous presidents, both Democrats and Republicans, sadly, have, have brought us to where we are today. It seems like uh, that while George W. Bush may have had some claim to targeted killings of non-state terrorist actors in the wake of 9-11 as a way to prevent an imminent attack. That definition under President Obama was stretched even further to include, as I mentioned, a U.S. citizen, albeit on foreign soil, as if that might make some difference. But in, in his uh, justification for the extraordinary number of drone attacks carried out by his administration, Obama both ask the public to trust the wisdom of the intelligence and military officials making the decisions uh, on these uh, specific killings uh, using classified intelligence. And we had to trust them and that the strikes would ultimately reduce the risk of, quote, creating more enemies than boots on the ground might cause. Was Obama right in his assessment? Uh, was that legal, what he did? And do you believe that his policy, uh, in fact, did prevent us from creating more enemies uh, while avoiding violations of both? U.S. and international law. So um, let me just like refer to a little bit of what you've talking about in the long arc of, of history here, which is the the uh, attempt not to use the word assassination is very much honors not just the Church Committee and its findings mm -hmm. and directives, but also um, international law, which has a very small carve-out for when political assassinations can happen during, as you said, um, when an attack is imminent and um, in, in the context of war. But even then, it's very limited. And yes, President Obama attempted to expand the authority for targeted killing, accepting it from the category assassination, and giving many reasons, including international law reasons, for why this would be lawful. And uh, and tying it, however, to the war on terror, which in a way puts it in a, in a, in a different scenario than what we're now seeing, because what we've seen this week is an attempt um, 
to attack and a successful attempt to attack mm-hmm. um, um, a, a leading member of a sovereign state. And so I just want to say that from the yeah. beginning, it distinguishes in many ways from what the Obama administration had done. But what the Obama administration did was to open the window for that. Mm. And they did it because they wanted to they wanted to expand the targeted uh, killing program of George Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama said that it would cause less trouble on the ground, less reprisal on the ground, and therefore less violence against American troops. Um, and they thought that it would work in cases where they couldn't capture somebody who they thought was being tremendously detrimental to the United States, among them Anwar al-Awlaki. Mm-hmm. The problem with an authorization like that, which does not go through Congress, which was done largely through memos that we didn't know about, the United States did not know about at the time, so it didn't really have a public vetting until it was too late, um, is that it very much comes down to trust me government. Mm -hmm. And that is what Obama said in the speech that he gave laying out his rationale for the targeted killing policy. One of the things he said was, look, I'm advised by good people. I'm advised by wise, knowledgeable, thoughtful people who are not here to break the law, but to protect the country. Um, and, And that essentially bypasses the the idea of laws that restrain. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a, a lack of uh, foresight to put in place policies by any president or any administration that, should it get into the wrong hands, can prove truly dangerous. And we've, we've now crossed that threshold, and it's dangerous for a number of reasons, one of which is the escalation to an attack on a state actor mm-hmm. rather than a non-state actor. And these are all the kinds of things that could be seen in the initial authorizations for the use of targeted killings in the war on terror, but weren't dealt with because it was seen that, well, national security, you know, means that we have to make sure that we privilege national security over the restraints of law. And this is the kind of situation you can get into Mm -hmm. when that's the trade-off that you make. Yeah, and I didn't care for it when Obama was basically saying, just trust me, just trust the uh, intelligence agencies. We got this right. We can't show you why we got it right, but just trust us. But uh, it is certainly not without irony or some might say hypocrisy that now the Trump administration is using that same justification. Oh, you have to to just trust the intelligence agencies. Uh, the very same ones that they have been telling us for years now should not be trusted are, uh, you know, deep state actors out to uh, lie to us and and to get the president. But uh, if what Obama did uh, sort of walked right up to the line of justifiable legality uh, in in targeting non-state actors and doing so under the uh, the authority of the, uh, you know, one one or two of the AUMFs, the uh, Authority for Use of Military Force. Uh, is there any legitimate legal argument at this point for the targeting of Iran's top military general, Soleimani? I mean, you, you mentioned that even uh, in Obama's case, he, you know, one of the conditions was it was someone who could not be captured. Well, we knew exactly where Soleimani was. He was at the airport in Baghdad, which is supposedly an ally of ours. If we had the evidence that he was uh, doing something so terrible or had done something so terrible, it seems like we could have just arrested him and 
held him on, uh, you know, on, right. on trial. So but what? We, yeah. But arresting a terrorist and arresting somebody who's a non-state actor and arresting somebody who's part of a sovereign state and in a leading position are two very different things. Okay. And I think, I think the um, the real issue here is less about um, what's happened in the past and what's happened happening now. I mean, I think it's important to point out how the policies of the war on terror got us here. Um, but I think it's also important to point out that uh, Trump is very much a game changer here in that I would have loved to be uh, to hear the discussion that they say went on providing the different options. Um, and then we know that the president chose this one. But what were the other options, mm. to your point, yes. about what, what, what could have been done? And, you know, Soleimani did not um, rise to prominence under Trump. He has been a known figure um, in in Iran, um, um, causing trouble for the United States and elsewhere in the world uh, for a long time. And so this has to have come up before in one way or another. The security community knew about him and could have made this decision and didn't. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that look at the chaos we're facing now. But the other reason is something you were just talking about. How does this country, the United States, declare war? What do we do? What are the steps we, we need to take? What will Congress say are the steps that need to be taken mm -hmm. to declare war? Is the War Powers Act in effect? Or is it something like a ban on assassination, even though it's a law rather than a policy? Is it something that can be pushed aside this easily? Um, you know, the reporting uh, requirement is for an attack like this is 48 hours before or after, right? So we're already... There is going to be a briefing of, mm -hmm. of Congress and the briefing of the, um, the Gang of Eight. But um, the question is, it's very important what comes out in that briefing. Because in addition to all of the optics and all of the confusion, the evidence of what it meant that there was an imminent attack is actually very important. And so it's one thing, referencing what you just said, to say, well, we have things we can't tell you. That's not the point of this briefing especially for the Gang of Eight. This point, is, the top intelligence officials, uh, intelligence uh, um, uh, politicians in Congress. In other words, they should be able to tell them. The Gang yes. of Eight should at least, uh, including all yes. of the Democrats and all the Republicans, should be right. able to get the, the actual information. Right. And that information is actually extremely important because one of the legacies from the Obama administration is a redefinition of the common sense use of the word imminent. Does imminent mean something that's about to happen, you know, in a couple of days, mm -hmm. let's say? Or does it mean this is a bad person who could do some very bad things to the United States and maybe already to, to American interests and maybe already has, mm -hmm. um, and therefore it's imminent, but it's imminent in a kind of amorphous, broad, someday sense, and we don't want to wait for that day argument, well, right? It, yeah. But, but, but that—that that is actually imminence doesn't mean any day. Imminence, the way it's understood under you know, where it's cited by law, means mm. now, right. means in the next couple days, right. and so this is very much um, important to, you know, the immediate thing that was said by the administration was there was an imminent attack. Then you had uh, reporters reporting that justice um, officials, I mean, that uh, administration officials had said 
Um, well, it actually, there wasn't an imminent attack. And so we've been left in this kind of netherland, like, mm-hmm. is it right or is it not right? And so this briefing is actually extremely important, and it's important that it's reported publicly. Was imminent something that sort of took the the word of, um, that, that it could be someday he was dangerous, and now this was a good time to get him? Or was it something that actually was in the works that was about to happen? And it, it, it matters immensely in terms of understanding, is there anything about the law that is controlling the activities of the United States when it is coming to a confrontation um, and violent exchanges with Iran? Well, and that's sort of what I'm getting at uh, in, in going back uh, to the Church Committee uh, for you know, 40 years is because the question of is there anything that actually controls what, uh, you know, legally what the U.S. does in these actions? I mean, you you know, you can't target someone unless it's to prevent an imminent attack. Well, an imminent attack doesn't really need to be imminent. Uh, it's not an assassination if it's not a state actor. So all non-state actors are fair, fair game. And now even an imminent attack for which there is no evidence presented is fair game because we have to simply trust the classified intelligence but, you know, hopefully we can rely on the Gang of Eight. But it just seems like there is no rule of law in one sense because we've undone everything going back to the War Powers Act of 1973 and the Church Committee, oh. etc. Well, so there is standing law internationally, and that's why there's been such... Um, uh, such a loose language on is this war or is this not war, right? Mm-hmm. Because if this is a war, there are certain circumstances in which under international law um, a, a, a killing of this sort can take place in very narrow circumstances. If it's not a war, then, and this is the stance that the uh, Trump administration has taken, is this is a self-defense. This is an act of self-defense. If, you know, the country didn't do this, you know, something extraordinarily bad could happen. So they're playing both angles. Both yeah. we're not at war, but we are at war. And so it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> Domestically, it's a different thing because you're talking about two different things. One is the War Powers Act, yeah. which involves the president briefing Congress and letting them know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the other one is more policy than law, in a sense, which is the assassination ban. Because the assassination ban, although the Church Committee recommended that it be made and, made and passed as a law, mm-hmm. it was not. Um, right. And I think uh, in recognition that there could be certain circumstances, etc., etc. So it's, it's, it's confusing on a lot of these fronts, but the basic bottom line is this is not something that the United States has um, supported or allowed since the Church Committee. Presidents, one after another, have signed the assassination ban, sometimes expanding it, uh, as in the case of uh, Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. and have, for the most part, as far as we know, um, adhered to it. The other thing that you brought up that I think is really interesting is that, that should we trust the intelligence agencies? We have to be able to trust our intelligence agencies. It is it is a crucial part of um, how a country, you know, is is viable and strong. And so one of the downsides of this is of this entire conversation is 
the increasing lack of trust in what we hear coming out of Washington mm-hmm. and distrust of are we hearing we're hearing different facts right we're hearing different facts about um, what whether or not we're going to bomb cultural sites to pick mm-hmm. today's right um, but we're hearing all different facts about about a number of facts uh, uh, on the ground and so um, including the original premise for this, which was, was it an attack imminent or not? And I see that as one of the further downsides of all of this, which is a country, you do not want your country to lose faith in the government as a government that is there to protect you. Um, and in fact, all of this has gone on in the, na- in the name of making the country safer. Um, and what we've seen here is that, no, now actually the Iranians, Iranian leaders have responded by saying, we're going to respond to this. We're not going to take this lying mm-hmm. down. Um, and this guy, and, and we've seen all of this um, uh, verbiage and demonstrations today of turning Soleimani into a martyr. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know what kind of violence that can spawn. Yep. So um, this is it, anybody who says that this was done in a way to um, create more security for American interests is it, is definitely wrong, yep. because we're now at a much more dangerous um, precipice than prior to this killing. Uh, and of course, I agree. And I also, by the way, uh, Karen Greenberg, uh, uh, agree with your uh, notion, at least, that we need to be able to trust in the intelligence agencies, at least in some respect. But, um, uh, you know, supposedly we have uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress who actually get to look at that information. But then we have things like uh, I mentioned the, the killing of al a U.S. citizen uh, by uh, Barack Obama. We have um, Donald Trump's bombing of Syria, an air ba- a Syrian airbase with 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles in 2017 without any possible authorization uh, that you know might have applied from the, uh, the uh, authorization of military force after 9-11 or to go uh, into Iraq in 2003. And the Democrats did not take action on really either of those things. If we're going to trust the intelligence committees, we have to be able to we have to have our elected officials holding them accountable. It doesn't feel like they are, which then paves the way for an appalling act uh, like the one that Donald Trump committed late last week. Yeah, I mean, I think you're mentioning the authorization for the use of military force, the 2001 authorization, which is the one so much has been premised on since then, Mm -hmm. um, has basically been a tool for saying we can expand this war um, as we need to um, against, you know, country after country or individuals in country after country. And um, Congress has not shown the appetite to, there's been murmurs of it. There's Mm -hmm. been, you know, attempts here and there, but Congress should have taken this up a long time ago and it was just easier not to do it and there is this is not a responsible way to do government and if we're going to if we as a country are going to be bombing other countries carrying out killings in other countries um, testing the limits of international law violating international law Congress has to has to weigh in at some point and the first way they can weigh in is to say wait 
we have to decide mm-hmm. what's what we have to sunset or you know put an end to the authorization mm-hmm. from fall of 2001 and understand we're in a new context with new enemies we're talking about state actors as well as non-state actors and we need a new AOMF and that would be a place to begin because um, it would then we don't have to redebate the war powers that etc we just need to talk about are there authorizations for war? Um, do we need a full declaration of war for for each one of these events, and so on? And I wor- I just worry that uh, presidents uh, will just work around whatever they are told in that regard. I mean, I, I take no joy in this, uh, Karen. The uh, Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif, uh, in an, in an interview on CNN today, called the U.S. drone strike on Soleimani an act of quote state terrorism. He described President Trump as lawless. Are you able to disagree with the Iran foreign minister on those points? Yeah, I mean, I thought the term, the, the choice of the term state terrorism, um, which he's used in the past as well, is actually a very interesting one because he's pointing to this nexus between um, sort of war and terrorism and the way in which this this gray area mm-hmm. between, you know, what is an attack on a terrorist, what is an attack on another country, um, and sort of bringing them together was his way of saying, you know, we under- you're in the middle of, of two different paradigms here, and you're trying to use the powers of one um, on the powers of another. Now, I think this is more uh, akin to an act of war than whatever state terrorism is, but mm-hmm. I think the idea of recognizing that these have now become mingled um, uh, arenas is important. Uh, Karen, one more before I let you go here um, with the uh, claims that uh, what what Trump has done is in violation of either U.S. law and or international law and possibly a war crime. Who would actually prosecute any of these crimes? Isn't it a violation, by the way, without a a, a violation of law, without a, a mechanism for enforcement? Isn't that pretty much the same as having no laws at all? Even if it is a violation of a war crime, uh, a violation of international law, who's going to, like I said, who and what army are going to do anything about it? You know, that's interesting, and I do think, that's an interesting question, and I do think the sort of which category are you in um, uh, has a lot to do with who would who could bring charges or what. But just take note that on the issue of uh, destroying cultural artifacts, mm-hmm. when the president said, you know, we're going to destroy these 52 uh, places, mm-hmm. um, cultural icons, um, in retaliation, um, if you do anything, right, mm-hmm. what was immediately considered to be a clear um, war crime, and basically he had to swallow his words. And, you know, uh, the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs came out and said, no, we're not going to do that. That would violate international law, basically the Hague uh, Convention, but also uh, the Geneva Conventions. And so I think, um, I think there are ways in which it's it, when it's less, when the categories are clearer, where um, international law, however you would, um, you know, institute its its uh, retribution, is very important and mm-hmm. a line that Americans aren't going to cross. And what and the facility with which they've said, well, we don't recognize the category 
of that you're using to define this as a war crime is really very troublesome. It is troublesome, but of course that goes back to George W. Bush and uh, you know describing the Geneva Conventions as quaint. I, I you know I have a feeling after all of this is said and done, and and Donald Trump is hopefully someday far far in the rearview mirror. Uh, that we're going to need another church committee to try and clean up all of these messes, going back at least as far as George W. Bush and his response to 9-11. Uh, but I don't see such reforms coming anytime soon, unfortunately, given our broken state of politics in this country. But uh, Karen Greenberg, really appreciate you joining us to help us make some sense of all of this. I hope you don't mind. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say we may have excuse to call you again uh, in the future, given everything that's going on. Uh, but really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to talk again. Karen J. Greenberg is the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law and the author of Rogue Justice, the Making of the Security State. Her New York Times op-ed today is headlined, Killing Qasem Soleimani Was Illegal and Predictable. You can find her on the Twitters at Karen Greenberg 3. She is way better than the other two Karen Greenbergs. Thanks again for joining us, Karen. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we're back with, oh, Desi Doyen. It's the first uh, Green News Report of 2020. Yes, it is. Uh, you got anything to talk about in, in the Oh, you Green know News me. It's, it's all fantastically it been, good news. Has it been a slow uh, couple of climate weeks here since we've been off for the holidays? Good Lord, no. I didn't think so. All right, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Uh, the world is still melting, isn't it? Oh my, yes it is. So, uh, before the end of the year, before Christmas, in fact, Desi Doyen, we, uh, on our last Green News report of last year, 2019, our lead story was the uh, record wildfires in Australia. Yes, yes it was, and, and they're still raging yeah, now, two sadly. Two and a half weeks later, it is still the lead story, sadly, in our latest Green News report. Federal government has committed $2 billion to what will be the mammoth task of rebuilding entire towns that have been devastated by the bushfires. Australia grapples with unprecedented wildfires in a taste of its climate future. Climate change intensified deluge floods Jakarta, plus... That part of the world is still very important for the price that people will pay yeah. here at their gas tank. Buckle up. Trump's escalation of tensions with Iran is spiking oil prices. All of those escalations and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And in the meantime, our political leaders have been doing their best to avoid addressing the role of climate change in making those bushfires more severe. Hey, Australia, we know the feeling. I'd apologize, but, well, you know, Rupert Murdoch and all. This is your Green News Report. 
Okay, Desi Doyen, we have been off for a couple of weeks, so um, Happy New Year. Mm, Not so much in Australia. Oh, yeah. A smattering of rain has provided only a tiny reprieve from unprecedented bushfires that have been sweeping across the east coast of Australia for months amid record heat and drought. At least 200 fires are burning in southeast Australia alone. As of airtime, at least 24 people have lost their lives, more than 1,500 homes incinerated. (laughs) The Australian military is assisting in evacuations and firefighting. And the impact on Australia's unique wildlife is devastating. Experts estimate the fires have killed more than 400 million animals and pushed threatened species like koalas further into extinction. They warn that these repeated bushfires risk destroying the ability of some landscapes to recover. And Australia's bushfire season isn't even at peak yet. And I think Australia's politics are not unlike America's in that you got a whole bunch of climate deniers in power in that country. Indeed, and conservative Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has dismantled Australia's climate policies while dramatically expanding coal mining, is under a firestorm of criticism for downplaying the role of climate change and his slow response to the ongoing national emergency. Good. Morrison was heckled by devastated residents and shunned by volunteer firefighters in a visit to a devastated rural village. As he should be, as should Every politician who is a climate emergency denier. How come we only had four trucks to defend our town? Because our town doesn't have a lot of money, but we have hearts of gold, Mr. Prime Minister. You're an idiot, mate. You really are. are Bushfires occur in Australia every year, but this season began very early in September and is significantly worse than past years. Years ago, Australia's scientists predicted this extreme bushfire scenario, warning the increase in hotter and drier weather plus changes in monsoon rain patterns would make bushfires more intense and more widespread. Scientists, what do they know? 2019 was both the hottest and the driest year ever recorded in Australia. And on ABC Australia, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann warned that the fires will get worse without climate action. You know, we're already seeing catastrophic impacts. You can imagine how much worse it'll be if we allow the planet to continue to warm, if we allow the continent of Australia to continue to dry out. This is just a taste of what's to come if we don't act. In Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, the death toll continues to rise after weeks of torrential downpours caused widespread flash floods and mudslides. 66 are now confirmed dead, with nearly 200,000 forced to evacuate. Officials are spraying areas of the capital with disinfectant to slow the spread of waterborne diseases in the toxic soup of floodwaters. And the rain is not over yet. Mm. Finally, heads up for consumers. Oil industry experts are warning that President Trump's assassination of Iran's top general could roil global oil markets, and it's already goosed crude oil prices a bit. Iran has pledged retaliation, raising fears that it might attempt disruptive actions targeting oil production in Iraq or Saudi Arabia, or targeting the strategically important Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, a choke point through which 20 percent of global oil is shipped. The world currently has an oversupply of oil, and it's early yet in the conflict, but previous oil price spikes have helped tip the U.S. economy into recession. You know who's not worried about the spike in the price of oil? Who? Oh, Tesla owners, hybrid car owners. You know, buy yourself an electric car, you don't have to worry about this madness, sort of.
For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. And don't forget, the Green News Report is 100% listener-supported. Thanks to you, we're on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Happy New Year. Electric car on roads so dark to change the end, rewrite the start. Electric car, so good so far. Ah, yes. There's going to be a lot more electric cars coming out this year, by the way. Yes, there will be. And not be. a moment too soon. By the way, uh, Fox News disagrees with you, Desi Doyen, on the oil prices. They say because of Donald Trump's uh, energy independence. Which was started by Obama. Right. Uh, that we don't, it doesn't matter what happens to oil prices in the Middle East. And, you know, that may very well be true. It really is early in the conflict. We really don't know how it's going to play out. But if it escalates, mm-hmm. if it escalates and they do have an impact on global oil supplies, we'll have enough of a supply of an oversupply here in the U.S. that that won't be the problem. But the price of oil is mm-hmm. set on the global market. Right. That will be a problem. That's where we get into the danger of tripping into a recession. Well, especially, I'll, especially by the way, after yeah. so many people, because of low gas prices over the last few years, bought so many SUVs. Big cars, yeah. I, I will tell you this. At the end of last year, uh, I really remember hearing jokes with the impeachment and all of that, that, bought, wow, what a, what, what a season uh, finale to the Donald Trump show at the end of 2019. Right. Well, it was true. It was, uh, if you look at it that way. Yeah. Uh, remember the season last year opened with him shutting down the government. Well, now the season opener this year has apparently outdone all the previous seasons. I don't like uh, the direction this is heading, Des. We should fire the writers. Oh, let's hope this is the last season. All right, we got to get out. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, Fordham University's Karen J. Greenberg, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free and share it with your friends and family by stopping by bradblog.com, uh, which is all made possible. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. We are, as I noted, 100% listener supported. Thank you for that. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and uh, share and harass me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.